Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you're enjoying the show where we connect college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in school. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Mackenzie Eaglin and Executive Council student Peter Van Wingerden on the state of the U.S. defense industrial base. But before I turn it over to Peter, I want to talk to you about AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program, because our application deadline for this program, taking place in D.C. this June, is just a few weeks away on March 1st. AEI's Summer Honors Program is an all-expenses-paid experience for undergraduates to come to D.C., from all across the nation and the world for one week in June to learn from top policy experts. Some of the courses we're offering this year will be taught by AEI's Corey Shockey on the changing nature of warfare, David French of the New York Times on polarization and pluralism, and AEI's Michael Strain will be teaching on the foundations of democratic capitalism. In addition to time in their seminar course, students will also have the opportunity to connect and network with young professionals, other students, and experts across the political spectrum. If you are a current college student or know someone who may be interested, head over to AEI.org or just check out the link in our show notes to learn more and to apply. And to stay most up to date with all of our work here at AEI's academic programs, consider joining our year-round executive council program. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode of the Campus Exchange. Enjoy today's conversation. Thank you very much, Jeff. My name is Peter Van Wingerden, and I am a junior at Claremont McKenna College studying government. Today, I'm so excited and grateful to be speaking with Mackenzie Eaglin, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she works on defense strategy, defense budgets, and military readiness. Before joining AEI, Mackenzie worked on defense issues in the House of Representatives, in the United States Senate, and at the Pentagon in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and on the Joint Staff. She served as a staff member on the 2018 National Defense Strategy Commission, the 2014 National Defense Panel, and the 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review Independent Panel. Mackenzie has an MA from the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a BA from Mercer University. Mackenzie, thank you very much for being here and thanks for joining me. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Peter. So what today's topic is the U.S. defense industrial base and its dwindling stockpiles. And so what I want to do today, Mackenzie, is begin by asking you to provide our listeners with the 30,000-foot view. So what exactly are defense stockpiles and, and what is the current state of those stockpiles? Sure. Well, thanks for caring about these issues because... Uh, you know, we're only as good as, uh, you know, our training, our leadership, our posture, our readiness, but also our stuff uh, militarily. And, you know, so think about it like when you go to the grocery store early days of COVID or actually even now uh, and, you know, supply chains are still recovering and not everything's there when you want it. Go to your cupboard in the kitchen, same thing. You know, you you turn around, you're like, oh, got peanut butter today, got peanut butter tomorrow. Day three, you're like, we're out of peanut butter. Interesting. And you don't have a second jar. Well, that's basically the same approach the military takes to their inventories of stuff. But primarily we're talking here, in this case, about things that blow up specifically. Mm. So bombs, rockets, shells, uh, ammunition, you get the point. 
Um, now, stockpiles can go much further beyond that to include, like, for example, critical minerals that the United States would lose access to in the case potentially of, of, a, of a major war um, that go in pretty much every weapon system, kind of like everything that we use in our daily lives also. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So it's kind of, it's, it's thinking, it's where the military thinks through uh, how much it needs in the, in the pantry um, should something go wrong and, or to prevent something from going from wrong to worse. And in this case, the 30,000 or whichever foot view is that we don't have a lot of stuff. We basically have a military uh, inventory of equipment that's built for peacetime An industry who, well, that's built an industry who builds the stuff for the military. They have responded rationally, meaning they've downsized and exited the business. So, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine, I'll end here, you know, just kind of exposed everyone's like, wow, HIMARS, Stingers, Javelins, you know, these missiles that have become household names. Uh, you know, the president toured a line, but he was lucky that one one of the three was even open because that's what has happened. And when you don't buy a little bit more than you might need in a war and you only buy for training, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. to fire weapons, live fire exercises, that sort of thing. Right. Um then you're going to run out of things really quickly, just like we are in Ukraine. Right. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, Ukraine, Mackenzie, and Chadlin and Stingers. Uh, two numbers or two facts that really stood out to me, and these numbers have probably increased in the past couple of weeks, is that we've burned through seven years worth of Javelins and 30% of our Stinger stockpile uh, in our support for Ukraine. And I think that really underscores the, the urgency, right, that comes with rep- replenishing, excuse me, those depleted stockpiles. And so what I want to ask you next is, so obviously, it sounds like we should be very concerned about these dwindling stockpiles for our readiness. How does it impact our ability to supply our partners and allies abroad and helping them with their readiness? Well, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I'm sure you've heard, Peter. And it, it obviously, the U.S., we don't really do anything alone in, in any sort of crisis, conflict, or outright war. I, in fact, I, I was in a meeting with former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis just last month, and he said he has never once been in an only American formation in any conflict, to give you a sense of how much we need allies, friends, and partners to do everything with us. No, no one country can have it all, do it all, be prepared for it all. Uh, so we need each other. Right. And but what's interesting is Ukraine didn't expose these limits. Let's go back in time, which is easier for me being a little bit older. Um, The air war over Libya, when President Obama was uh, in charge, uh, Operation Odyssey Dawn, we were providing precision guided munitions to France and other European allies pretty quickly after the start of that joint coalition operation uh, because they ran out. So. The challenge isn't so much knowing that we were all kind of too short on these critical supplies. It was that no one did anything about it after Libya. And will mm-hmm. we do anything about it after Ukraine? And, you know, Washington has a tendency to sort of get back to comfortable when things end that are messy and complicated like Ukraine. And, uh, and you know, maybe things change, maybe they don't. So to me, the challenge is momentum. Uh, learning, actually learning and doing, you know, a bias for action. But what it also, so, right, so we're limited in what we can give adversaries because of what we're doing in Ukraine, which I would argue is so important. You know, we don't. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just, 
Ukrainians are fighting uh, this war for Russia for pennies. Like Americans, this is the war they would be fighting if, if Ukraine wasn't potentially eventually. So it's super important and we have to do it. But were something else to go wrong, I mean, look at all of the Iran headlines this week, North Korea, uh, China's surpassing us in terms of intercontinental ballistic missile launchers. All This is just all this week, plus a spy balloon and a whole fleet of airships uh, that we haven't known about. I mean, this is one week of headlines, Peter, right? Um, so things could go wrong very, very quickly, particularly in places like the Korean Peninsula at any moment. And when we are running low, because we've only really sized and shaped for peacetime and maybe one scenario that's pretty short, and then Ukraine turns out not to be short, and then these other things pop up, you're not, you basically self-deter. You say, we can't get involved because we don't have the stuff. Well, if we don't get involved, then lots of people die. Are we really defending the, you know, the liberal international order that we helped create and that we lead for our own economic interests here in America? It's not you know, some, some do-gooder. It's not just purely altruistic reasons why we care about the global commons, for example. Uh, and then so then to me, what it really means, the bottom line, Peter, is that you invite conflict when people see your vulnerability, when they say, oh, America's low on everything that blows up. Let's start that. Uh, let's do that um, uh, amphibious invasion of Taiwan, uh, you know, blockade, quarantine, whatever. You know, just it invites aggression when you project weakness, which is what our dwindling stockpiles expose. Right. And I want to stick on Taiwan for a second and ask you, uh, I want to ask you this. So Taiwan, uh, for listeners uh, who may not know, is this self-ruled uh, island that Beijing asserts as its own. Uh, Taiwan has yet to receive uh, $19 billion of weapons and equipment. And again, this number is probably increased in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and this includes asymmetric, uh, asymmetric excuse me, systems and platforms. They're small, lethal, and mobile that are really, really critical to becoming the proverbial porcupine uh, that a lot of strategists refer to. Um, and so what I want to ask you is, um, are depleted stockpiles the cause of the, the backlog in Taiwan? And what are some steps that our government, whether it's the executive branch, the defense industrial base, um, what, what are some steps that, the, 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 that they can take uh, to address procurement and backlog issues, maybe in Taiwan or just anywhere else that comes to mind? Sure. Well, they're, they're, our, our, our rapidly depleting stockpiles are not the reason for this backlog, not the primary reason. In fact, there's, I can think of one specific uh, military capability we have that the production line is only open because we're selling this capability to Taiwan. So thank goodness for that. Uh, in this case, you know, it's a whole bunch of different reasons, which makes it harder to solve because you have different stakeholders with different responsibilities and authorities and by, you know, bias or not for action. Uh, uh, not quite half, but a lot of this is Capitol Hill. It, there's this lengthy review process that part of the approval and there is, I'd say about 9 billion of this funding is tied up right now in, in some sort of like legislative branch review. I don't know the exact term. That's a challenge, you know, because the Hill's the, also a bureaucracy. You have many different agencies that execute and oversee foreign military financing, foreign military sales, uh, and, uh, you know, everybody's cranking along, I guess, but it's not, here's the, the backup to the sort of the higher level. The issue isn't, are we getting the approval to your, you know, your points? It's, are we getting the stuff there? And you, you, alluded with your question, the answer, which is no, not nearly quick enough. If Ukraine showed us that, uh, you know, we were unable to deter Vladimir Putin from invading 
unprovoked uh, another country, then it's not a stretch to assume the same, you know, other leaders are watching and, and learning that playbook like Xi Jinping. And to me, the clear lesson from Ukraine is to do for Taiwan what we didn't do for Ukraine. So it's do it all before the invasion. Do it more, do it better, and do it way faster. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line on Taiwan is we're moving at the same old pace, same old snails, DC pace of bureaucracy, check all the boxes, compliance is the is the the preference over urgency. And that's going to, I think, come back and bite us. I hope I'm wrong. I want to be wrong. Right. And, and, and sort of on that note, I know you've written before about resetting uh, the, the ratio of procurement to, to R&D spending. And so for a little context for readers, uh, I know previously you talked about during the Cold War, the procurement to R&D ratio was about $2.74 to $1. During the global war on terrorism, the ratio was $2.07 to $1. And now that number is about 1.3 to 1. And so can you explain for our listeners what this ratio is and perhaps the role or the importance uh, spending more on procurement may or may not play uh, when it comes to our stockpiles and maybe more broadly our defense industrial base? Sure. I, I don't really like overly like erudite or technical DC terms. Procurement is just purchasing, right? right? It's just, you know, take out your money and buy something. So that's the account through which the military buys things. Mm-hmm. Now, the military buys more services, labor, IT, and software and technology than they buy things, which might surprise a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Where, but we buy so little new equipment that hardware is increasingly the commodity at the Defense Department, kind of like our, our United States economy as well. We don't build as much as we need or should, I would argue, in shipbuilding, aerospace, and other manufacturing writ large in, in the United States. So this ratio is really just how much you build for today or buy, again, which extends to you know, things that are available now right. in the present moment versus the future. So we're really talking about present versus future. Got to do both. And you're a global superpower with global interests. You have to do both. The reason I focus on this inverted ratio going basically from three to one to one to one and how unhealthy that is because our, the, the U.S. military, right, providing for the common defense founding documents, core function of the federal government. It's the only mandatory and exclusive job of the federal government. It's not healthcare, despite what the government outlays spending per year is on healthcare entitlements. But um, so the people tend to think like, right, so we got to win the wars if they happen. More important than winning the war is preventing the war. That's called deterrence. Some people call it competition. It's kind of the daily churn and grind of being there, being forward, shaping events, putting out simmering crises before they become full-blown problems because that's way more expensive and it's way bad. It's bad for everything, you know, supply chain, stability, governments that fall, mass migration, starvation. I mean, there's all kinds of bad things that happen in conflict and violence. So, you know, when you have to deter, get in the mind of your enemy and convince them today's not the day to take Taiwan, for example, you need to be there. If you're sitting back home in America watching the Chinese spy balloon float over saying, gee, we really should send a carrier, uh, you know, a second carrier to Japan. Well, then it's too late. So, you know, so you have to already be there forward on the ground, which, of course, could be in the air or at sea or under sea. 
to shape the calculus of bad guys. And being there, you need stuff. Not only do you need stuff, ships, planes, aircraft, vehicles, picket, and, and of course, trained people, but you, you know, the technology, the future, that other pot of money, technology isn't like a virus. It's not airborne. It has to be paired with something. We need stuff to put our technology on. New technology can go on new stuff, sure, but right. old, our old stuff isn't old if it can be a tech playground for innovation with new capability. Our military is always a blend of old and new and enduring and legacy equipment. That's the way it's always going to be. But isn't it funny? What was flying over the uh, Chinese balloon last week? The, what, 55-year-old U-2 spy plane, right? So we have all this, you know, old stuff is doing new things all the time. We've over-biased research and development for the future. And I would argue that, you know, it's come at the expense of all of the things we need, the fleets and inventories we need for the services to be forward around the world. And uh, it's now an unhealthy ratio because you need both. Absolutely. I I could not agree more. Uh, What I'd like to do is throw out some potential solutions that have been proposed uh, by various policymakers, uh, experts, and I'd like you to sort of, I'd like to get your take on their efficacy and viability as solutions. So the first two I want to ask you is the Defense Production Act and presidential drawdown authorities. Look, I I think the Defense Production Act is a tremendous tool. It it came in so handy during uh, COVID, lockdowns and Operation Warp Speed to, to get America capability faster. What was really interesting, though, about the, the DPA, as we call it, the Defense Production Act, what, which is basically where we can act like a, a Soviet-style central planning or the Communist Party, where the government can sort of direct private industry to build something else or create something else that they weren't planning to do in the name of you know a true emergency. Uh, that's essentially what it is in a nutshell. I didn't give you all of the details, but you get it. Um, what we found during COVID and warp speed, though, was private industry stepped up on their own. You know, we saw you know uh, distilleries in Kentucky now then saying, "Hey, we'll make hand sanitizer." I mean, and it happened across the board. The president did invoke DPA several times, but it was really more of a it was a, a nuanced. We had the support of America and American industry and American innovation and thinking, which was awesome. So it's great. It's there. It's it's fine if you need it. But in in, in a real emergency, you know, people want to help. Um, presidential drawdown authority is fine. Uh, again, it's good. It's helping in Ukraine. But basically what that means is you're using our military stuff if things go wrong until we can build that, you know, sort of replenish that because we're in an emergency, which we are in Ukraine. Glad that we have it. But like I said, at some point, we're turning back to our shelves and we're finding there's no more peanut butter or, or whatever, artillery shells, rockets, bombs, guns, missiles, pick your, you know, pick your whatever capability. Um, you know, we're sending to Ukraine in a month what we build in a year for some of these. And so to replenish those stockpiles, depending on what it is and depending on even if the White House wants it faster, best case scenario, two and a half years to eight years for almost everything we're sending Ukraine. So it's something to be used very um, scarcely. Perfect. I'm going to ask you about two more potential solutions, then we're going to move on to our final question. Leveraging the defense industrial production of our allies and then multi-year procurement uh, contracts. And maybe explain very briefly for our listeners what those are for those who might not know. Sure. Right. So like I said, we don't do it really anything around the world without our allies and partners. 
Um, but we also do a lot of co-production with them. We buy stuff from them. They buy stuff from us. And, then, and that's all good because it gives uh, the military what they want. It's something called interoperability. So, you know, basically where, you know, your Android and your iPhone, you know, you get the green bubble. Mm-hmm. You don't want the green bubble, right? Nobody wants the green bubble. So if you have an iPhone. And so basically it gives you guys, everybody, a blue bubble equivalent. I'm trying to pick a metaphor here that works for our audience. But um so when you get interoperability because you're using the same stuff, it makes it makes things a lot easier when when the shooting starts. And so, but you know, if our industrial base has been, uh, like I said, at a peacetime rate, and industry responded by exiting, cert, you know, they're not doing this stuff anymore. Um, and for the for in large parts, our allies' situation is worse. So that's not really the, an immediate solution. We all need to build back together. And then the last one, I'm sorry, was what? Oh. Uh, multi. Multi. Oh, right. So, I mean, how, how could I explain multi-year? Basically, it's if you use your credit card and you buy something very expensive, like a car, and you, the more you pay up front, right, the, for the down payment, the smaller the, the monthlies are after that for your loan. This isn't exactly like that. This is more like the cheaper it's going to be, if you pay up front for something you know you're going to need for for several more years. Um, We buy ships. The U.S. military buys almost all of its ships through multi-year planning and purchasing. So basically what that means is because these are capital assets, right? They don't come together quickly. It's usually about a three to five-year time frame, depending on what we're talking about, destroyers to subs to carriers, aircraft carriers. You have to give a company long lead times and notification so that they can go source and supply the steel, you know, the tubes, the wires, hire the electricians and the solderers and the welders. All of this takes years and years and years. So the longer runway you have as a company to know that and plan for that and your vendors and suppliers, the cheaper it is for everybody. And then the taxpayer gets a break. So yeah, we've, we've got to do way more of this, particularly when it comes to munitions. Like I said, up until now, we've really only bought ships this way, occasionally an aircraft, but not things that blow up. And the Army's quickly finding that they need to do this because industry said after Ukraine started and everyone's like, well, why can't we get stingers and javelins quickly? And industry, industry said, because we need a guaranteed funding stream, multi-year. We're not going to go reopen the factory, three shifts in the you know a day, um, and and." plan the tooling and buy the parts and, and second source the vendors, unless you're going to do this for like four years. One year, not worth it for industry. We've got other things to do. We've got customers out the door. And so that's why you do it, to incentivize industry. But it's also, like I said, a great deal for the taxpayer. There's no reason not to do it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you very much for that. And now the last question, uh, which we ask all of our guests, is what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? You know, I guess I like your question. I'd, I'd be, I'd love to see your summary somewhere of what every person has said in response to this. It's not that simple. I thought about it yesterday, <laughs> but I'll just tell you um, sort of a generic, reflective one because I, I, I came to Washington right out of college and started working and started grad school. But I, I don't know that I ever thought I would stay in DC for as long as I have and make my career here. Mm-hmm. I think what makes better professionals are people who get out of what it is they do or where they do it on a semi-regular basis and touch, uh, uh, get outside of that bubble. Whatever that bubble is, it could be DC, it could be Pentagon, it could be whatever your issue thing, travel, 
go other places, talk to other people, engage with those who may or may not agree with you. But the more you leave what you do, the better you are at what you do, if that makes sense. I don't mean long-term and that sort of thing, but I mean, the more I am I'm better at helping think about these problems in DC, the more I'm not here. <laughs> so that's something I wish I had done. Perfect. Well, Mackenzie, thank you so much for, for taking the time and thank you for, for joining us. We all appreciate it. Peter, thank you for being interested in this and for asking me. It has been a pleasure and I wish you great success the rest of the school year. Thank you very much. And I hope our listeners take an interest in this as well. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.